0: Welcome back in, everybody, Bleeding, Claret, and Cobalt, trying to get back from our summer slow-ish summer, Euro 2020 slowdown, not necessarily a hiatus, but trying to get back on schedule here. Trey Fitzgerald, your host, Ryan Hale, super producer behind the glass, and today's guest is the new-ish, he's been here about, I don't know, five months, uh, technical director. Kurt Schmid. Kurt uh, comes to RSL from Inter Miami. He had been in uh, Seattle with Garth Lagerway prior to that, and obviously spent some time in the LA Galaxy. Uh, Kurt, a former player, coach um, at both the college and uh, professional levels, uh, is a guy who uh, whose father Siggy Schmid is effectively a legend of American soccer and I was fortunate enough to have uh, worked with Siggy uh, mostly when he was the head coach at the LA Galaxy in the you know first 10 years of MLS and as we get into with Kurt um, you know we had Siggy uh, do a few RSL uh, games as a color commentator during um, I think it was 2005 maybe 06 I remember John Ellinger was the coach and Spending some breakfasts with those guys on on game day at the Torrance Marriott, um, and we get into that. But Kurt's Kurt's role as a technical director, we talk about a, l- a little bit of that and how he integrates his daily plans and conversations with uh, Luke Maholland on the scouting side, with Elliot Fall and Tony Beltran, the the GM and the assistant GM for RSL, Rob Zarkos, the. EVP of soccer operations, and also how that whole staff deals with uh, Freddie, Homison, Arnold, all the coaches, uh, all the players at the various levels of the pyramid. And uh, Ryan, I thought it was a really cool conversation, almost an hour long here with with Kurt, but he's got no shortage of uh, experience and opinions to share on everything from analytics to international acquisitions to obviously the youth development paradigm that is so so important to the rsl way it was really cool to get to know kurt
1: yeah i think this is like the what i want from this show is to have the you know the the front office come in here and be transparent and be like open um kurt's a great guy it's i think i think you were talking about like how it's it's odd that he's been here so long. And we haven't like really got to know him that well. Yeah. I mean, just we has been on the show, and they just and you hadn't even met him before. No, both, which is just one of those things that happens in in a big yeah. I mean, space.
0: I think some of the COVID protocols have yeah. have have effectively kept us away from first team or people in in close proximity to the first team so i feel like all that's loosening up now and and obviously it was great to get him to come into studio because it just makes such a difference to have these face-to-face conversations and not do phone or zoom
1: yeah for sure and i think that that's you know the but part of it speaks also to the fact that you know this is somebody who is not spending time wandering the halls you know talking to everybody he's watching video he's crunching numbers. He's in there with Vahe, like look at the, the analytics. And I, I realized as we were listening to this that I, I love and I hate that because I want to know this. I want to know the little, the every little detail, every little stat, every reason, why did we win? Why yeah. did we not win? What's the the, um, why is this guy playing? Yeah, why, why is this it, guy not playing? But then I also want to—I uh, want my guys to be the ones that are like scoring high. You know, I don't want to hear that they're not. <laughs> so, like, but I—but it's a—I uh, love—I love the 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 dual the duality of like watching a soccer game. You have the numbers and you have the um the the passion of just the players in the field. And he does a good job of uh, you know, you can tell he cares about both, but yeah. I mean, he's definitely a numbers guy. So
0: Yeah, it was cool. I can't wait to have him back in. Maybe we can get into some more specific takes on either on players, past or present, but um, he's a great storyteller. And um, obviously seeing and hearing his perspective from his time in Seattle, Galaxy, Miami, all, all have done big things, obviously, in this league from different perspectives, but for him to really value this opportunity that he has in salt lake to move his family here during i think a a time of transition and and maybe a lack of of clarity in certain ways due to the ownership change and all that um it's great to hear kurt's take uh really i learned so much uh from this conversation so can't wait to have him on again but um without any further ado rail salt lake technical director kurt schmidt Leading, Clareton Cobalt, presented by OneWireFiber.com. That's the number one, WireFiber.com. The goal at OneWire has always been a simple one. Deliver cutting-edge telecommunications products and services better than anyone in the Utah communities we serve to all businesses, regardless of size, affordably. Visit OneWireFiber.com or call 801-990-6200. All right, Bleeding Claret and Cobalt, Trey Fitzgerald, Ryan Hale here, honored to be graced with the presence of new RSL Technical Director Kurt Schmid, down here in our Mountain Air Studios, Kurt. Uh, good morning. Welcome. Thanks for hanging out with us today.
2: Yeah, morning. That's that's a that's quite an introduction. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think I've graced anyone with my presence at all, but uh, I love, appreciate it.
0: Love the self deprecating humor. You'll, that's why you fit in so well with <laughs> Rob and Elliot and Tony and Luke and everybody else over there. Yeah. How's the transition been? Just your first uh, few months here and. In Utah, in general, and and with the club specifically,
2: it's it's been great. You know the the families here, and and they've adjusted, or at least are adjusting, pretty quickly to everything. Um, you know, it's it settled in with the the staff really well. As you mentioned, the group of guys, it's a great group, um, and they've made it very easy to to fit in and to mesh uh, with them. So it's it's been a really easy transition period for me.
0: One of the things we've talked a lot about with. All those guys that we've had on the pod, we've had Rob, Elliott, and Tony, I think, on twice in, over the last six months. Uh, but the fans are always curious, kind of the dynamic, right? And how it all, how decisions get made, how things kind of fit together. Um, you know, I was with this club from from the inception, from 2005 until, you know, late 2018. And I always kind of characterize it as uh, a lesson that Garth Lagerway, who I'm sure we'll talk a lot about, uh, Said to me, but he's like, Look, Jason cares about doing what's right for the guys at practice on Tuesday. I'm worried about the next three transfer windows. Hmm. And there's obviously a lot of ground in between those two, um, you know, milestones or goalposts or whatever you want to call them. But, um, you know, RSL's kind of turned into. A brand or philosophy really centered a lot on youth development because of the infrastructure we have and all that. So I I know one of the big aspects of your job based on uh, your experience and, and what you've seen in Seattle and LA and Miami that I'm not sure we really had a grasp on here before is kind of like player progression fans. So here we are today coming off a U15's trophy in the MLS Next, which is something else that Hopefully you can help educate us a little bit about, Mm -hmm. but just, um, I guess, give us a, a sense of kind of the scope of your job, everything from first team Monarchs Academy next and, and how we take players through the pyramid.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, at the different places I've been, I've, I've done a lot of different things and, and probably in terms of a front office, I've done probably a little bit of everything yeah. at different points. But, you know, here it's been good to focus really on on the soccer aspects from the academy through to Monarchs, through to the first team, you know, really focus on um, scouting, you know, and that's a work in progress in terms of. Growing the scouting network and improving our data collection in mm. terms of using, you know, data analysis and objective uh, pieces of information to inform our scouting process, but also organizing it and getting everything together. Um, working on, like you said, you know, sort of player progressions and development pathways and making sure that, you know, if we've got a talented kid at the U15s, which obviously we have a few, making sure that we bring them along in the right way, that there is is a pathway for them to get from from the Academy to the Monarchs to the first team um, and not sort of, you know, facilitating that as, as best that we can and not interrupting that uh, process. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's that's a little bit of, of what I've been able to do here, what I'm working on here. Um, yeah, did I answer your question? I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> an
0: open-ended, wide-ranging question. So, uh, like all of these, I think it as – I guess what I'm fascinated about is like I have a very I've been sort of outside the league or outside the club now for almost, you know, two and a half, three years. And the league's changed incredibly in that time frame. So much less five years ago, ten years ago, which was arguably RSL's heyday, you know, in the early probably from two thousand even Garth and Jason used to always say, Hey, two thousand eight, two thousand nine, that success came maybe a little early according to plan, but You know, 2010, we lost four games all year and went five months without losing a game. Um, You had a core group of guys. I think we had eight starters that had been together five years or more for three or four seasons. So there was an incredible amount of stability here, which was probably good at the time, but is probably impossible to achieve in the modern Major League Soccer, I imagine, because MLS is a bigger player now in the international market. Uh, certainly standout players are getting younger because of the commitment to the academy infrastructure over you know the last 10 years. Because it was about 10 years ago, I think, when Garth went to Deloitte and, and Dave Checkets and said, hey, we really need to try to tap into this facility down in Arizona and, and create a, a pathway. And um, that's become, as we've talked about, kind of our, our ethos. But uh, getting back to you a little bit, obviously – um, old people like me know, knew your dad pretty well, uh, around this league. Um, I don't know if you know, he actually did some TV games for us back in 2005, yeah. uh, when John Ellinger was our coach. I think, uh, Siggy had been, uh, let go from the galaxy, you know, one of those times, I guess it was kind of in between and, um, I'm trying to think who was. I think Dave Durr was doing our games at the time, but he got pulled into. I think probably an Olympics in '96, the Atlanta Olympics. Or sorry, 05. It was a. It was, it was a, a U tournament,
2: a U20 tournament. They were coaching together at the U20s. Yeah. Okay,
0: and then uh, and you know. Back when the league was only 12 teams, it seemed like we played either the Galaxy or Chivas every other week, so we were spending a lot of time at the Torrance Marriott over there, but I remember having some great breakfast with your dad, talking just talking soccer, and um, because of my time at the league before that, he and I had a great relationship, so... um I don't. I just thought that might be cool for you to know that he had done some television for us back in the day. Yeah no
2: he, he I remember I remember that that time actually pretty well yeah. because he was between between jobs I was uh, coming out of college a little bit before that and you know, I remember he did did a bunch of different things. He did did TV and and yeah. did some radio stuff. He wrote some articles yep. and did some of that that piece. So yeah, and you know, grew up a few blocks from the Torrance Marriott. So yeah. it uh, it it wasn't a long long drive. For well, him, he was sure. a
0: phenomenal educator. I think a lot of people in this league learned a lot about the game and how it should be played uh, from him. So. It's uh, awesome to have those memories. Um, so you played at Wake Forest, right, and UCLA?
2: Yeah, I played uh, two years at Wake Forest, and then I transferred to UCLA and graduated. Graduated from there.
0: Okay. Um, Parkhurst was a teammate of yours?
2: He was not. Um, I played with uh, like James Riley, okay, Will Hesmer, um, sure, Brian Carroll, those okay. those guys. Yeah,
0: that's awesome. Those are some some good names. A lot of those guys have done great things in this league. Um, and then, you know, you, you, after playing, you became an assistant coach first, right?
2: <laughs> I did a lot of things. Yeah, sure. But uh but yeah, I started coaching actually while while still finishing up in college. Okay. Um and kind of that was the one constant while trying to, you know, feel out a few other things. But yeah, I coached uh youth, coached high school, coached youth club. Uh then I went did a little bit of college, uh, assistant college at St. Mary's in in California in mm-hmm. Moraga. Um came down, worked at UC Irvine for a couple years and then coming out of that in 2009 <clears throat> went up to Seattle and started started working there and just offered myself to do whatever they needed to get done. So, you know, talked to Chris Henderson and, yeah. and Adrian and, you know, said, look, I'll I'll pick up cones. I'll work with guys individually. Yeah. I'll go scout games. I'll do whatever you need me to do. And, you know, in a year we'll kind of talk about it and see what sure. what you guys think I'm good at and hopefully focus on that so
0: um, one of the things I've talked a lot in the past with Craig Weibel about because you know Craig's a guy that was a player was a college assistant was an assistant here under Kassar uh, then when Garth moved up to Seattle um, because I think Seattle had called Deloitte to ask for permission for Weibel to be Ezra's assistant at s2 um You know, Deloitte didn't want to lose another guy to, uh, as he had lost Jason and and Garth. And so um, he asked Weibel to become the technical director. And so that was, I remember kind of hanging out with Craig while he was debating that switch from being either on the field to having that completely different focus. What was that kind of transition like for, for you? And was there a moment where you're like, I, I want to pursue this path over here as opposed to being on the grass every day.
2: It was hard, you know, given, given my background and how I grew up and, you know, like you mentioned, you know, spending as much time as as I could with my dad when he was at UCLA and the galaxy and, and Columbus and Seattle, like, you know, soccer in this country you've you've always needed to be a little bit of a, a jack of all trades guys were coaches and administrators right. and equipment guys and you know they did everything you know scouting recruitment like coaches would do everything and so for for me to step off the field was taken it would it was unfamiliar and it was taking a big step away from what seemed like my whole life like that was the path is always mm-hmm. on the field plus some other stuff and as you've noted, you know, like the the growth of the league has been very rapid in the last few years, and having these uh, more fleshed out front offices in in various clubs, like that was sort of just starting. Yeah. Um, when I when that decision was facing me, it was like it wasn't completely clear that there was going to be more than one front office or two front office jobs per club, sure. and so it seemed a little bit risky. But I think you know things have gone. I guess, positively in that direction for me in terms of more teams have have been focused on that and building that infrastructure out and having, uh, you know, more scouts and, you know, various people, division of labor in front offices. So that's all increased and improved, I think, improved the efficiency of, of clubs and front offices. And so. Yeah, I mean, I guess I don't know if I got lucky or, or made a very <laughs> well-calculated decision, sure. but it, it's worked out well. But for sure at the time, it was a little bit of a scary leap to make and to to kind of assume that this part of the game, the professional game in the States, was going to continue to grow in that way.
0: Because, I mean, it was only, I think, five years ago here where as soon as an MLS team's season was over, that, that whole coaching staff is scattered off to conference tournaments and yeah. then the NCAA college cup and all that kind of stuff, trying to look at guys.
2: Yeah. And even when, you know, in the first couple of years I was in Seattle, you know, and each, each year, like as, College coaching jobs would open up. Right. Like I always almost had one eye on that as well. Like, hey, should I, should I kind of go do that now and and get out of this? And you know, luckily I didn't because I really enjoy this side of it and what I'm doing now. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's it's been the growth um, and the expansion um, and the the increase in in these positions has been very rapid in the league and it's been very good.
0: Um, I don't know a lot about college soccer, but I was struck in the most recent. You know, final four or whatever. Uh, Who was there? Penn State, Marshall, a couple other schools. (laughs) Out of weird
2: season. (laughs) Out of the,
0: yeah. But out of like, I think the 44 starters from those four schools in the semifinals, 41 of them were. Not American, we're mm-hmm. foreign citizens, and obviously, I think that that has got to be a direct result of the rise of the academy system, right? Hundred percent. I mean, it's
2: the evolution that colleges had to take. You know, as as more and more the promising uh, youth developed in in this country are opting to sign pro contracts rather than go to college or leave college early. You know, a lot of coaches have decided that well, in order to compete, they've gotta gotta go abroad, and yeah. you know, those guys have maybe tasted the pro the pro pipeline a little bit and yeah. were a little bit disillusioned or didn't succeed for some reason they're still successful college soccer players, and it's been a, a pathway where you know, like a mid-major school can can now compete with some of the traditional powerhouses because those those schools are maybe losing recruits or losing mm-hmm. players to to professional contracts in MLS or USL, and now they can come in and bring in some foreign guys and compete on the on the level. So it's it's sort of the natural, I guess, evolution that college soccer is
0: taking at this point. Do you think college soccer is still a viable? resource for for mls for late bloomers etc
2: given my background my answer is probably predictable but uh, but i would i would say yes and the reason why is is sort of this well i'll back up and say you know using the term college soccer Mm -hmm. as a as a as just a term is probably uh problematic because you know how many colleges play division one men's soccer. Like there's a lot of schools. And so if you're going to talk about the the top five schools and the bottom five schools, there's a huge gap between those two. That's, you know, insurmountable. Um, so, so just talk about as one blanket term is probably, you know, not ideal, but, You know, you look at college, the one one thing is the amount of money that has been poured into college soccer in terms of just infrastructure, travel, stadiums, facilities. You know, it's it's massive and it's there's still not probably enough money in the game overall in this country to just walk away from that, that investment. Right. And so I think it can still provide value to to the game in this country. The other side of it is is some kids still need an intermediate step. Um, not everyone has the the maturity on and off the field to go straight from U15s U17s RS you know Monarchs yeah. and then you know straight to RSL like that pathway is is not always linear. Sure. And I think sometimes kids need to get pushed out of their comfort zone and you know maybe, and again, this could be college, this could be a loan move. There's various ways to accomplish this, but a lot of times I think kids need uh, something to spur their maturity. They need to go live on their own, cook their own food, do their own laundry, manage their time. College helps because kids are accountable, right? And they've got to go to class. They've got to make sure that they study for this test, but also show up at training on time and be fit and eat right. And it's hard. And maybe there's a lot of distractions there, but sometimes those distractions can uh, breed a more well-rounded person that becomes a more well, well-rounded and disciplined player, Right. you know. So it's not, it's not the pathway for everyone. But I do think there are um, some beneficial effects for some kids. And again, sometimes you can accomplish those goals in other ways by, you know, maybe you find a, a loan move for a kid to a different USL team, yeah. which you know pushes him outside of his comfort zone that way as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously, here in Salt Lake, we talk a lot about you know the Austrian experience that Andrew Brody and Pablo Ruiz had because. You know, they both went over there for two very different reasons, right? Ruiz wasn't going to get time under Pecky, needed games, a guy that the club had invested, I think, a significant amount of money in. Meanwhile, Brody had been uh, probably a top-ish, top-level USL player, but maybe had kind of plateaued, thinking about retiring, goes over, has a great six-months-plus during part of it during a pandemic right with christian zige and he comes back and he's he's flying as an injury replacement to aaron herrera uh here and and so you know i know those are isolated incidents but it speaks to i guess kind of how situational certain things are for different players you got to find a way to get games you got to find a way to 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 find uh the right fit right the right situation for a player to achieve his potential
2: yeah you know i mean the Austrian um, experience is, is a great example and, and brody's been fantastic since yeah. he's come back <clears throat> I don't probably know enough about him before he left to sure. tell you like hey what are the biggest differences but I mean the kid's got a great attitude he works very hard he's been very effective you know and he's he he plays to his strengths um and so he's been he's been great since coming back and pablo pablo the same you know I think pablo has been very good since coming back. Um, and so, yeah, I think probably some of the things I talked about can be served by sure. that type of uh, experience as well, 100%. Um,
0: switching gears a little bit, what was attractive to you about <clears throat> Salt Lake? Um, there must have been a little bit of acknowledgement of risk coming into this club at this particular time, being effectively kind of a league-run team and being in between active ownership groups and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I'm I'm certain that your time in L.A., your time in Seattle, your time in Miami gave you three very different perspectives just on on ownership and philosophy and how things get done. So um, I'm just kind of curious what your perception externally was of RSL and why this job and these this particular opportunity was attractive to you for, to make a commitment and move your family here?
2: I think one of the biggest things, you know, you've mentioned it is sort of the focus on, on youth and development. It's something that has interested in me, interested me since day one, obviously my background being coaching youth soccer and in college. And, you know, even my early years in Seattle, where my focus in terms of scouting was on the, the sort of younger players. Okay. Sometimes when you're at clubs that, you know, our, our big budget, you you don't always get to buy or bring in a young kid and then wait for him to come good or, or even help him come good. It's, it's, you know, there's a, there's a, maybe a certain pressure to, to find a guy that's going to hit the ground running. And, you know, that, that pressure's certainly there. I think Salt Lake has shown the commitment to developing youth. And that's something that's very attractive to me, but not only the commitment, but also they have, we have the capability to do it right with Mm. the infrastructure that is built here in terms of the academy, the training fields, the school, the dorms, um, the indoor, uh, piece, the, the locker rooms, the weight rooms, all, all that stuff. Um, you know, some of that stuff is better than some of the you know, quote, big budget teams that sure. that um, are around the league or, or that have had in the past. And, you know, I think it's very attractive. So not only is it the commitment to developing youth and developing young players, whether it's academy kids or even bringing in young, young foreign players, um but it's the capability, I think. So, you know, having the, the infrastructure and the support to be able to bring guys through and then the the club identity, the club philosophy, that that's what we like to do. Um, those are the the big things that attracted me to moving here. And that's, you know, that's apart from anything where, you know, I've heard such just good things about just the area in general mm-hmm. and, and how it's a great place to, to live and to raise a family and all that. that those were important factors as well.
0: Yeah. Um. There's still a lot more questions and answers, right about about what this uh, initiative is going to provide, and I guess the hope is that it just provides more games and more opportunities for for uh, kids to develop as as you bring them up through the pyramid.
2: Yeah, look, it's it's the league's new initiative, right? That's um, meant to sort of take the place of what the DA was doing mm-hmm. and and serve that purpose. I think when you know when you want to develop young players. Step one is getting all the best young players together in your team to try to get them to train and and play against each other regularly and sharpen, um, sharpen their skills that way. But you've also got to play games against some of the best competition. And so this is, this is what MLS next is, is doing right. And trying to get all the, the best youth players and youth teams together in, uh, in, in one competition. Mm -hmm. And, you know, especially the the professional, professionally focused clubs, the MLS clubs, in together, and so that we're always competing against uh, some of the top competition around. Um, it's it's new, and I think the league is it's an evolving, right. um, you know, species where the league is going to continue to probably make tweaks and changes and this and that. And the last uh, whatever year plus of COVID, you know, as it was launching. Didn't help, I'm sure, yeah. <laughs> and you can probably talk to someone at the league <laughs> office that's dealing with that on a day to day basis, and the and the challenges that that have come that way because of that, and you know RSL has faced cha- challenges in that way as well because of travel was difficult and those sure. sorts of things, but um, it's you know it's the top club competition, I think the. The 15s, you know, we have the 15s and the 17s in there. And that's those are two of the top age groups. I think above the 17s, um, you've probably read recently about the the new professional league that yep. MLS is, is trying to start. So that's that new league is gonna be the you know, the the effort at bridging the gap between sort of the 17s and and the first team. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so those that's sort of the capstone piece of the development pipeline, the developmental pyramid here. And I think you know it's going to be great for for the game and and for development. I think you've already seen it. You know, as since the DA started, I think it's it's helped uh, young players develop, and I think this is going to carry that to the next the next step.
0: How um, and look, I, I think we don't yet know um, what's happening with the Monarchs and maybe some of the other MLS run USL teams in, st- in terms of. Are they going to stay in the USL? Are they going to play MLS next? Is some club going to try and do both? But I think there's a big difference, right, for an 18-year-old to be playing against peers or to be playing against men that are putting, you know, uh, food on the table for their families. And that's just part of, I guess, kind of being thrown in the fire as a professional, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah, look, I think I, I think no matter what league it, it's in, it, you know, it's about getting the kids – Games and mm-hmm. minutes, but like you said, in a higher stakes environment, right? Yeah. So, you know, some games, you you know, you you're playing against another MLS team and there's going to maybe be a decent chunk of, of young players there, but you want to play some games against, like you said, uh, guys that are, you know, j- not journeymen, but veterans, right? Yeah. Guys that have been in this league for a while that are a little maybe savvier, a little more physical and can, you know, you can teach kids something else other than, uh, hey, here's how you play Beautiful soccer, but hey, here's how you grind out a result in a game that matters, you know, so development has a lot of different pieces, you know, becoming technically and tactically proficient is, is obviously important, but you do have to teach kids how to win and how to, uh, you know, sometimes you got to teach them how to manufacture goals and win sure. tough games and play ugly, but still get the result. And, you know, those are lessons that you can learn in that league for sure.
0: That's all stuff that uh, our good friend Brian Dunseth refers to as the dark arts. The <laughs> dark arts,
2: <laughs> the dark arts. Yeah, I mean, you can, yeah, you can call it the dark arts. <laughs> I, I was a center back as well when I played, so I probably, I all probably right. did some
0: of that as well. Um, how, I guess, what's the process like from from the front office standpoint, or the uh, to kind of integrate what Freddie and his staff are saying and doing and seeing and you got to help them see, but also Homison, Arnold, um, the whole pyramid Uh, is it, is a big part of your job trying to make sure that everybody's on the same page philosophically. And that's, I know that's a a amorphous evolutionary type thing, uh, day-to-day, week-to-week as well.
2: Yes, I guess is the short answer to your (laughs) question. Um, you know, look, we're not trying to dictate, um, formations and tactics uh, from the top down. Um, I don't think that is the best way to go. I think we want to develop players that are adaptable and are just players that know how to play in certain parts of the field right mm-hmm. so maybe i'm a center back but hey i know if it's the you know the 90th minute and i ended up with the ball in the in the attacking half in the corner yeah. I, i'm not just going to freak out i know i'm going to shield shield the ball and kill the game you yeah. know like just players who who know what to do at different times of the game at different uh, parts of the field so you know when it's, it's about communication, you know, speaking with, with Elliot, Tony and, and Rob and, and Luke and making sure that we're setting sort of the, the direction, you Mm -hmm. know, where do we want to go and and where do we want to end up? Um, Talking to, to and, you know, it's philosophically, I think probably the Monarchs has, has changed a little bit from, you know, Hey, we're going to go win a championship to, Hey, we're going to really focus on giving these young kids some, some minutes. Um, So, so I think making sure that we're all on the same page there and Hey, that's great to say, but what does that mean on a on a day to day, game to game, week to week uh, basis? Right. You know, is this kid playing? Is that kid playing? Does you know how do we how do we develop this guy? Is putting eleven, sixteen year olds on the field going to develop those eleven, sixteen year olds? Mm-hmm. Or you know, hey, do we pick? three or four that we believe in and surround them with pieces that'll help them succeed you know those are questions that we have to talk about and answer for sure um and then yeah incorporating it into into freddie and you know like the first team the number one priority is is to win right Right. and so you know we want to develop players we want to win that's a that's a dual purpose we want to develop players that can help us win um but but ultimately the goal and freddie's freddie's you know freddie and his staff are they got to win games that's that's their expectation
0: um, switching gears to international perspective, I guess. Obviously, I think this area of player acquisition and development has changed uh, infinitely in a short period of time. In, in context of Major League Soccer, right? You've got you've got <laughs> Toronto, Seattle, L.A., New York. Um, in recent years, Atlanta that have come in and just thrown a lot of money at international players, but uh, and maybe in Miami too. Um, But it seems like it's gearing a little more towards maybe lesser known names that have a high selling upside. Um, For Salt Lake, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, it's probably more about developing a core and then adding the necessary pieces. And like what, what this club has done in the last six months in terms of Bobby Wood, Rubio Rubin, uh, Tony Dakovich, uh, Johnny Menendez, those all seem to be very, very promising. Um, either international acquisitions or bringing guys back to the U.S. from abroad. Um, what's that process like for for you guys? And you know, how many windows ahead are you looking? And and sometimes it's agent relationships, right? That yeah. that put a player on your radar. Maybe suddenly, last you know, five days left in a window, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Look, we're always looking two, three, four windows out, you know, like I, you know, if, if, if if Luke and Robin and Elliot and Tony want to have a conversation about, you know, next year's roster and even how I see it developing in, in, you know, 2022, 2023, like, you know, certainly I've, I'm always thinking in, in those Mm. terms, those uh, long-term timeframes, you know, that thinking always evolves. You know, it's not set in stone. What I think right. about the roster for twenty two and twenty three now is not necessarily how it's going to play out. How guys perform between now and then, how the team performs between now and then, is all going to inform that for sure. sure. But I, you know, we're we're always starting to look that way. So you know, again, as soon as, as soon as this window closed and and we got the the two deals over the line um, at the la- you know, at the end. You know, right away, and even, honestly, a few weeks, uh, a few months before that, you know, I've already, Luke and I were already talking about, hey, what are we looking at summer, what are we looking at mm-hmm. uh, next winter, you know, and we've we've got short building towards yeah. uh, those windows. Now, guys that are available now, maybe... You know, kill it for the next six months. They're not available in January, so we have to be on our toes and we have to be nimble. And we have to have you know longer short lists. (laughs) Sounds like an oxymoron, but (laughs) you know we have to have some longer lists so that we can pivot to to you know the next and the next option if we need to. Uh, But we're always looking long term in terms of internationally, and then you know we look inside as well and we say, okay, um, you know, do we have a young player in this position that can be a backup next year, can be a starter next year, and then you know because of that, how does that impact our decision-making right now, you know, and, and do we have someone, is there a short-term international solution we can bring in that can bridge this gap before we think this guy's ready to play this role?
0: Is there I I don't expect any names here, but do you have a, a story or two that you could share about, you know, maybe kind of a deadline deal that you thought was done that fell apart for a bizarre reason? Uh, cause like, I, I'll tell you all one All the reasons uh, are bizarre. <laughs> sure. I, like from RSL, this was, I think Garth was still here, <laughs> but it was probably after Jason. So this must've put it at like 14 where, um, you know, we needed center backs. Right. And so we, we brought a bunch of guys in a preseason and we had guys on our, on our radar and the guy we wanted, uh, had a, had a kind of a bizarre heart, um, essentially a hole in his heart. Yeah, And he was willing, because he was playing in Turkey, I think, where he had a big contract but wasn't getting paid because, you know, contracts are just pieces of paper over there, I guess. But, you know, he, he was willing to sign a waiver saying, like, hey, if I die on the field, that's okay. Like, I want to come play for you guys. And we weren't comfortable with it, obviously, right. and the deal didn't get done. But um, there's just a million kind of stories like that where you think you've got a guy – on his way, and, and something goes sideways at the last minute. So nothing that dramatic. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah. Um, look, I mean, I think transfer deals are are crazy. Um, things change quickly all the time. You know, you're you might you might get onto a guy early, a young player who you know by the time you're able to try to get the deal done, maybe in the interim, had plays a really good U twenty tournament, or yeah. you know, starts getting invited into the first team. You know, like. I remember, you know, not within the, with you know, the past few few months, you know, maybe, but there's there's a guy that we thought we could bring in, um, you know, and then all of a sudden, coaching change at the club. Yeah. Old coach hate him, new coach likes him, and you know, there you are. Um, so there's different things like that, but nothing quite as dramatic as a whole. Shady
0: uncles come uh, come out of the out of the <laughs> shadows, asking for an extra. F- 50k off the books, right?
2: That's happened. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that happens. Um, obviously, uh, nothing, nothing off the books. But yeah, those. You, sometimes there's a few, few extra agents. You're like, wait a minute, I thought this was the agent, but then there's yeah. two other guys that say they're agents, and you know, everyone wants to get paid, and you know, again, you got to explain to them like, hey, this is MLS. This is how much money we have we don't have any more money than this so if you want this money then he doesn't get that money and you can tell him that and you know there's things like that where you know you you got to navigate those those you know bumpy roads a yeah. little bit but but um yeah i mean sometimes it it can kill the deal but you know sometimes it just takes it makes it take a lot longer
0: has the world of uh like third party ownership of players shrunk in the last decade
2: you know i, I mean yeah I, you know it's tough to say it, how much it shrunk because I, yeah. I don't know if I could tell you how big it was maybe. Yeah. I think, you know, it's, it's a little bit, um. It's still
0: pretty common in South America though, right? Yeah. Well, I don't know how common
2: third party, like actual third party ownership yeah. is, but for sure, sometimes, uh, the waters can get muddy down in South America in terms of, you know, which club, you know, okay, this club owns, you know, 50% and that club owns 50%. So who, who says yes to the transfer? Where's the money going? Like, you know, it's figuring that those things out. It's, it's South America is always a little more tricky in those instances than, than Europe is, I think. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't, never really dealt with like a quote unquote third party owner in terms of like had to go pay some, you know, some, some, some random guy, a transfer fee for a player. Like that's, that's never really, been a thing that you know that i've had to encounter that i think mls has ever really done so
0: are there parts of the world that are kind of with talent that are waking up to mls yeah well i mean how have you seen that kind of evolve is it and is it because of like you know the david (laughs) beckhams of the world or is it just because the league is 25 26 years old now and people know they're going to get paid every two weeks
2: yeah well uh, well that's always a thing right i think you know having a paycheck that shows up and not just a big number on a, on a piece of paper that you signed and haven't seen a check in a few months. That's important. I think there's still some people that don't realize that as much, but it's, it's huge when you're talking about players coming from South America, or I think you mentioned Turkey and some of these leagues, you know, Greece is probably another one. Um, I haven't even gotten to Cyprus yet. I don't, I don't think I want to talk about (laughs) Cyprus, but, um, or, (laughs) or should we need to? Right. Um, No, but uh, you know, so I think that's something in terms of players wanting to come here i think more and more players want to come here the the visibility of the league abroad is is much higher and then i think as players come from here and do big things over there and more players do that i think that that helps a ton as well but i think you know also clubs are, are obviously waking up to the young players in in MLS in the US generally sure. right and i think you know one one big driver of that honestly is is the bundesliga mm. and germany's always a little been a little bit like, almost fad driven you know it's like if, if someone comes in and has success in, in Germany, like everyone decides like, oh, we got to do that. Mm. You know, so like it maybe somebody signs a Japanese player and this was a while ago. Right. And he does really well. And so now it's like everyone's got a Japanese player. Maybe same thing happens with a Korean player. Mm. And now it's sort of happening with Americans. It happened. Uh, it's maybe still happening with uh, young managers, you sure. know, it was like uh, the Hoffenheim Yep. Hired a young manager and did really well. And now everyone's like, hey, who do we have in our academy that's, you know, in their early 30s that we can promote? And, you know, so it's it's helped us because I think the fad or one of the fads right now for, for them is, you know, getting getting young Americans in, into the pipeline. And now it's starting to spread across Europe and Dutch clubs are interested and, and maybe French clubs are interested now. And, you know, so it's been, it's, I think the, the visibility has been great. And I think people are realizing, hey, there's, there's players here for sure.
0: It's funny hearing you talk about the fads. Um, It was probably 12 years ago. Jason was probably in his second or third year as head coach here. He's obviously a young guy that Dave Checketts kind of plucked off the field. And and it was a a move that was widely scoffed at, panned, whatever, at the time. But I remember Jason went and spent, I don't know, three weeks. I think Klinsman might have helped him go spend three weeks studying a few different clubs in Europe. And he came back and he's like, you know what? The things we're doing are not all that different than what they're doing over there. But at the time, the perception was that we were light years behind the world of, of football.
2: Yeah. I think sometimes it's, it's what's different over there is the, the, the consistency of, of quality and the demands of training and the pressure guys are in, every day. I think in the US, everyone talks about how we should be farther along because it's such a big country and there's so many people. Well, that's actually, I think sometimes a disadvantage, Mm. you know, you look at small country like Uruguay or small country like Holland, you know, how hard is it to scout the entire country? (laughs) It's not not that hard. And how hard is it to get all the best players into small environments to, uh, train and compete against each other and create that high level of competition every day in training. Right. It's, it's not that hard. It's, it's, it's going to be easier than it is in this country. And that's why you see hotbeds in this country. Like, Southern California or, yeah. or the Northeast or, um, you know, wherever, wherever it ends up being, where there's lots of good players coming out of there because they're all playing together all the time. Yeah. So I think, you know, here there's often, <clears throat> there's lots of plateaus and at least historically, I think it's getting better. You know, the MLS involvement in, in development and infrastructure in the Academy helps because, you know, you know, we, we don't, we're not trying to win the U17, you know, whatever invitational yeah. on every random weekend in the summer, um, what we're trying to do is develop pros. So, right. hey, sometimes that means playing, you know, the best 15s together to play against the best 15s in the country, like in an MLS Next Championship context. But sometimes it mean, it means, hey, can we play this? u15 kid with u17s or this u17 kid with monarchs even though it's to the detriment of of his age group's team it's going to be to the benefit of the individual and the club overall so anyway i think here you know there's always been plateaus where the kids who sometimes make it through you know and the kids who get drafted into mls or had been drafted into mls maybe 15 20 years ago they had been the best player on every single team they played on until they got drafted And then it's like, oh, my gosh, I have to play my best game every day. Otherwise, I'm not even going to play on the weekend. Mm -hmm. You know, whereas every other team he's played on, maybe it doesn't matter what he did all week because he was the best player on the team. So he was going to play on the weekend. And the guys that maybe had to fight and scrap for playing time in that team, those guys probably weren't good enough, didn't have enough talent to maybe make it all the way through. So sometimes you would have the talent without the mentality and the mentality without the talent and you wish you could squish two guys together sure. all the time. Yeah. So I think that's getting better. But historically I think that had been an issue um in this country that, you know, countries in Europe, again, like like you brought up the story with Jason, it's not that they're inventing these magical drills or exercises <laughs> that are making everyone better players. Right. It's it's sort of, you know, guys competing at that high level um every day. And and that was huge. You know, and so I think that's that's what we are aspiring to and we're getting better at what we're doing more of now
0: well and, and you see it now right the first team the way the roster construction is if you look at outside back you look at center back you look at d mid uh you look at forward striker winger whatever you, it's like you got three guys for two spots more often than not and you want that ideally right you want that competition every day and training to kind of iron sharpen iron right
2: yeah yeah look i mean it's more specifically to us like my job, our job is is to give Freddie options, right? right? And so when he's when he's looking at training over the course of the week, when he's looking down the bench during the game, that he sees options that can improve the team, you know. And if someone's out of form, then someone's in form, and you know, then it's it's got to be like sort of a next guy up mentality. So you know, that's what we've tried to do over the last few months. And I think once we incorporate everyone we've brought in will have a lot, a lot of options. And then it's, it's a competition and, you know, it's up to those guys to perform and it's up to Freddie to, to pick the team and, you know, go out and win games.
0: How do you view kind of the last five year, I guess, rise in analytics and how do you kind of marry that with, you know, the wealth of uh, knowledge that you have from watching high level soccer, probably your entire life. What's that? What's that marriage like? Uh, yeah.
2: I yeah. I, I like I'm a analytics guy. Okay. You know, and one is one reason is because it's it's objective, right? And mm-hmm. soccer is a very subjective game. And I remember, you know, I've spent time at, at various clubs across Europe and spent time with their sporting directors or their chief scouts and talked about it. I remember talking to one club and it was like you know, they had all this data. I was like, cool. How do you use this data? And he told me how they use the data. They had this big scouting database. They had scouts all over the world. They had all this information. And I said, okay, how do you use that? Explain to me how to use that. And then I said, so, okay, so how do you get all this? How does it get to like, okay, yes, we're going to sign this player. And he goes, well, like this is the data and this is what those guys think, but ultimately it comes down to if I think he can play. <laughs> and I'm like, what if you like, what if you're not here anymore? Yeah, yeah. You know, like what, you know, what if you get like what if you make a mistake? What if you're sick that day? Like, you know what I mean? It's just it's so subjective. And what if
0: you're watching the wrong piece of video? Yeah. <laughs> what if
2: you watched his worst game? Like, yeah. you know, you know what I mean? Like so many things can happen with that. And so so for me, it was like there has to be a way to inject some objectivity into this, right? And so You know, I think soccer is a game. There's too many interconnected parts to come down to like the one number. Thank you. Um, You know, there's everything's moving and flowing and, you know, goals have such an outsized impact on the game where one team could be killing a team, you know, both subjectively and objectively, all the metrics right in their favor. And then the other team comes down the other way, scores a goal on the counter, and it's like we lost the game does that mean everything we did was wrong? No, it just means it didn't work today. And, and there's just two, it sort of defies, um, that complete analysis. But that being said, I think there's a lot of things, um, that can be measured. I think there's a lot of things that, you know, you know, is, are these metrics going to mean we win? No, but do these metrics maybe mean we're playing this style or that style? Like, yeah, I think they can. Um, you know, you can look at different things and, um, you know, can we can we say okay, subjectively we like players X, Y, and Z. Well, what do they look like? What are, what metrics are mm-hmm. they performing in? And so, how do we map that onto what we want? Can we find other players? That are doing similar things in their teams, or at least teams that are playing similar styles to us. Maybe it's, hey, we're playing this style, so let's go find a team that's playing the same style and go get their winger or their right back or whatever it is that we're looking for because we know that that player can perform in, in that style of team. So anyway, yeah, I mean, there's lots of ways to incorporate data, and I think... You know, it's something that we're continually working on to incorporate here, and and we have used it in our in our process. Obviously, the last few months, um, we brought in an, another data analyst who's helping. Um, so Vahey's got
0: some
2: help, huh? Vahey's <laughs> got some help. All yes, right. uh, we've we've brought in a, a guy to take some of the load off of him, and you know he's he. Those guys have been super helpful in putting together um, various visualizations and packages mm. that can help us kind of evaluate guys and and help um, you know parse and look. I think I don't. I mean I don't know if it ever will be, but it definitely isn't now. Uh, data isn't far enough long now where we can sit. Well, it will pick the player for us from a recruitment standpoint, but what I think it can do is take a list of a hundred and narrow it down to 10 or 15 that then we can narrow down, you know, to, to the right one or two. Um, And so that's, it's, it helps us, it's going to help us cover more ground. It's going to help us be more efficient, um, you know, and those things will be massively helpful. So, you know, Luke and I don't have to watch, 400 players. Maybe we only have to watch 10 or 15. Mm. And because of that, we can spend more time focusing on those guys and and hopefully make a better decision that way.
0: Um, How much time do you spend watching current video to kind of reach conclusions and, and I guess verify maybe some of the things that the data or the trends are telling you?
2: Yeah. You look at it and you got to decide, You know, sometimes you see some some data, and look, some of this I'm focusing maybe on recruitment, but there's also like, um, you know, team analysis type stuff or our own opposition analysis, things like that that you can use data for as well. But yeah, sometimes you look at it and say, okay, well, you know, this guy, you know, pressures a ton, okay, because you know we can measure pressures and pressure regains, how many times the guy recovers the ball after we pressure. So if you look at uh, Salzburg or Leipzig or New York those guys might be a lot higher on pressures than another team, right? Some of that is obviously very tactical and individual to that team. And if you pull that player out of that environment and put them in an environment where they're not being asked to do that, they're probably not going to do it. And so, so you do have to weigh some of those things and, and sort of that's, it's, it is a little bit of trust, but verify where it's like, okay, this is what the numbers are telling me, but why are the numbers telling me that? And so is there anything beyond that? Context is, is very important. (laughs) Absolutely. This is, this
0: is my mantra on Twitter. When I, when I weigh into – and I don't pretend to know anything about expected goals or a lot of the modern data. Nobody really
2: knows about expected goals.
0: <laughs> well, I was going to ask how many cases of White Claw do I need to buy you to create a <laughs> burner Twitter account to help me fight some of these battles out there. I don't know. I
2: don't know if I'm drinking White Claw. <laughs> it's
0: not what Garth says. I'm just oh, kidding. Geez. Um, it's funny though because so much of – you know, and I love – engaging with our fans, right? And um, and I have for a long time, and it's usually pretty good, but it's sometimes to my detriment. But there are a lot of kind of isolated metrics that people use, and I'm like, okay, but you got to look at who this guy is playing next to or who's behind him or who's in front of him or, you know, if we're at home or away, right? Because a lot of times at home, especially when this team is playing well, teams come in and sit behind the ball for, as you've seen, for 70 minutes and then they hope they've got some gas left for the final 20 and all that stuff kind of that context gets lost i think
2: yeah you look at uh you look at game state you know so it's like oftentimes what you find is is teams that are losing will will try to push the issue more than teams that are winning right and that's that makes sense that's by design if I'm winning one nil I don't need to necessarily score the second as much as I need to keep you from scoring at all you know so teams might sit back a little when they're up Te- you know you want to see how do, how do teams perform when the game's tied when they're winning when they're losing you know whether it's whatever the metric is expected goals pressures tackles pass completion like you know where they defend on the field in terms mm-hmm. of proximity to their own goal you want to look at all those things in the different uh, states of the game but again you know going back to like expected goals or whatever the metric is you know you might see a high expected goals value and if if a player's got an expected goals value of you know five for the season and he's got two goals you got to ask yourself well why is it because he's super unlucky he's playing against the best goalkeepers in the league or is he really bad at finishing mm. you know it's it's going to be one of those reasons right but you've got to figure out why sometimes you got a guy who's expected goals is 5 and he scored 10 goals and you know everyone's going to be all about the guy who scored yeah. 10 goals but you know if a guy has scored 10 and his expected goals is only 5 I I want to look at well what was it last year and what was it the year before that sure. and if he's always consistently outperforming himself then you know what he's probably a really good finisher if he does it once He might be really lucky, (laughs) you know, and so you have to, like, make that assessment. You just
0: contrasted Ja Plata's 2014 season and his 2017 season. It was
2: purely by accident. (laughs) I did not do that on purpose.
0: I mean, he did have one year where he literally put 70% of his shots on frame, and that translates.
2: Yeah, and we had a, you know, in Seattle, we had Obafemi Martins that I think he killed his expected goals number each year, you know, and... I think he was probably a pretty good finisher. So, you know, again, it's sometimes it leads you to another question, but you know, with some some of the metrics, it, the context is important, but at least it gives you a feel for capacity, you yeah. know? So it's like if he can, you know, win this many tackles or complete this many passes or pressure this many times, you know, maybe he won't do it with you, but you know, he can do it. So mm. if you do play a system that requires that, you know, he can do that. Whereas if you find a player that doesn't have that, you know, that doesn't say he can't do it, but you the, the risk is higher. Yeah. And so you're trying to ultimately with recruitment again, at least you're, you're trying to use the data to to mitigate your risk of a certain signing working okay. out.
0: Interesting. It's fascinating. Uh, and then, like as you, you can tell, I could probably talk about no, this. A this lot is awesome. For... I think everybody wants to. Uh, you know, we haven't got into a lot of specific names, and and that's for probably a good reason right now. Um, you, I think you've only had one, probably game, maybe a couple where Rio Tito Stadium was was pretty packed. But you've, I presumably you've been here many times before wearing other colors. What's what's your uh, kind of as we wrap up here, what's your impression, what's your message to kind of the RSL fan base about the, the state of the club and and the future hopes, demands, expectations for this club?
2: Well, to be honest, I actually hadn't been here that much. Really? Okay. I came. I came one time in like early two thousands for a, re- a reserve game. I think. Nice. When, when there was still the MLS Reserve League. And yeah, that might up have in, been uh, Park City. Yeah, that might have been the the last time that I actually came. I I, I don't think I came for any first team games. Okay. Because in Seattle, it was always a bad experience for us. I think no matter what was going on in the season, we always struggled here. So. Yeah.
0: It was tough. There's some great games. I mean, that Mario Martinez laser. <laughs> I was in Seattle for that, but okay. yes,
2: I was. I was
0: happy about that goal. <laughs> well, and he was a guy that we had on our discovery list, and actually traded his rights to Seattle.
2: I remember vividly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember, uh, yeah, we had, uh, Adrian had to negotiate with Garth. I, I remember this all. Yeah. But he was, uh, he had to get a good half season and the best preseason that I, I think I had seen up to that point in MLS. And then he went to a Honduras national team camp and came back and he was never the same again. Yeah. Went back home in the summer.
0: Yeah. That he was, scored,
2: he scored the, I think at that point it was the most important goal in Seattle's history.
0: which yeah, was good. I'm, yeah. That was 2011, I think.
2: Yeah. No, it was, uh, yes, oh,
0: I think so. It was unbelievable. Because Ramondo had been standing on his head that series, he did that every time against us. Yeah, yeah, he did <laughs> that, that.
2: until I asked him to stop at some point. I was like, <laughs> "Just give us a
0: break." And you had probably known Ramondo right from UCLA functions or something. Yeah, we, we yeah, I, I mean, knew him a little bit. Yeah, the, that SoCal hotbed was fascinating. Yeah, yeah, Inland Empire. I was, yeah. l- I
2: was more on the coast, but, but yeah, from UCLA for sure. I knew him, knew him for a bit. Yeah, so
0: I mean, before I learned everything I knew about soccer from Garth and Jason, I learned. Everything when I was at the league from Hugo Salcedo and Tim Hankinson. I used to spend a lot of time with those guys. Nice. In the early days of MLS, just trying to understand how the world worked. But uh, Lauren Donaldson in Colorado, too, when I was in college working for the old – APSL Foxes, which <laughs> had like seventeen guys drafted in the first ever MLS draft. So, That's
2: right. Robin Fraser among them. Yeah, but, yeah.
0: And you might remember Ian Fraser, whose son just played this weekend for Columbus. That made me feel especially old. Oh wow. But uh it just means I've been around a long time. Anyway, Kurt, um love having you here. Can't wait to have you again. Probably in the middle of a of a of a transfer window, you know, where you can really <laughs> spill some Secrets for us. We have plenty
2: of free time. Yeah, exactly.
0: Um, anyway, welcome to Utah. Hope you and uh, and your family enjoy it here. Look forward to uh, getting to know you better and, and having you around. But I'm I'm sure everybody uh, listening to uh, to this pod is is uh, excited to kind of learn uh, your perspective. Yeah. No. Awesome. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you. That's it. Bleeding claret and cobalt. Trey Fitzgerald, Ryan Hale, and RSL technical director Kurt Schmidt. All right, everybody, that's our show. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Taryn Meyer for delivering Kurt Schmidt to us here at Bleeding Claret and Cobalt. If you want to connect with us, please join us on our socials, Twitter or Instagram at ClaretCobalt, C-L-A-R-E-T-C-O-B-A-L-T. We are always up for your banter your guest suggestions. I uh, would love to hear from you in terms of corrections, omissions, uh, RSL memories, or whatever. This show is produced independently by Mountain Air Media and Trey Fitzgerald, recorded at Mountain Air Studios in Draper, Utah. The views expressed on this show are our own and do not necessarily reflect the opinions or positions of Real Salt Lake. We really appreciate the strong support we've received from all of you over the last six months. We appreciate all of our partners, our sponsors, our super fans, et cetera, especially Adam Sessions and One Wire Fiber. You can catch him, them, I should say, over at One V O I P, on Twitter and Instagram. None of this would be possible without the man, the myth, the legend, Ryan Hale.